0: What a powerful song. In the cross, in the cross, be my, what's the word? Glory ever. What kind of a person would look at the cross and say it's his or her glory. I'll just leave that one hang there for a little while. Over the past several weeks, Pastor Mark has been reminding us that in the midst of our preoccupied lives, we could have missed Christmas. Far more significantly, missed Christ What's true of us today was true back in Jesus day for there were people then and there who in the midst of their preoccupied lives missed both Christ and Christmas And what was true of his birth was also true of his death. There were people in that day, just as there are people in our day, who in the midst of their preoccupied lives, when the Christ passes by, they miss him. That was brought home to Ruth and me, both poignantly and rather rudely, when a number of years ago, it was our privilege to go to Israel. And while we covered the length and the breadth of that small land, the height of it uh, literally was going up to Jerusalem. Anything in the geography there, no matter which direction you come from, if you go to Jerusalem, you are going up physically, and for many of us, emotionally. One of the things that I was looking forward to in the city of Jerusalem was walking along the Via Doloroso, the way of suffering of the Lord. Tracing his steps from the time of his mockery in the Praetorian out to the brow of the place of the skull. And I guess I hadn't realized how naive I was. I thought that this would be a time of spiritual pilgrimage, a time of thoughtful prayer and reflection. But obviously it was because I had never walked that road before. The picture will show something of what that road is like. Now the crowd wasn't as large at the time that we were there, but it wasn't the crowd that disturbed me. As we're walking along, we were blocked along the way because there was a Coca-Cola truck making a delivery. On a few steps further, we were blocked again as a meat wagon came along, bringing the daily load of lamb. And then all along the way, there were the street vendors. One dollar, one dollar, one dollar will get you a genuine mother of pearl cross or an olive wood cross, just one dollar. I rather imagine in reflection that it was much the same way that day when Jesus walked that road. Perhaps the only difference was that when people saw the Roman soldiers come, they would retreat into the shops and wait until it passed, for they were the occupying power. We're in a series that Pastor Mark has entitled, Christianity Explained. This is the second week in the series. Kyle Glenn, our pastor of student ministries, took us through the first one. Jesus is the Son of God. Our time then is now will be largely in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark begins the, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark, as we understand it now, was probably the first of the Gospels to be written. So when people read the Gospel of Mark for the first time, they were reading a whole new genre of literature. Nothing like it had ever been before. It wasn't technically a biography of Jesus. It was really a tract of sorts, written to convince the reader most likely in that particular day, a Roman reader, that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark says so in verse 1 of chapter 1. He says it again in in chapters 3 and 5 and 7 and 14 through this gospel to show us his reasons for believing that he is the Son of God. Pastor Kyle took us through his authority as a teacher, his authority over disease, over nature, over people in the form in which that authority took. Today we want to talk about where that authority took him. Because he went willingly. But the shadow of the cross was over him from the very beginning. We saw that on Christmas Eve, a part of the plan of God. You can see it depicted in various ways in the paintings. Who do you say that I am, Jesus said to his disciples on a spiritual retreat. Who do people say that I am? And then, who do you say that I am? And it was only after at least one of the disciples recognized that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that he then spoke plainly to them. That's the word that Mark uses about what was ahead. He told them that he must suffer many things and be rejected, that he must be killed and rise again the third day. A couple of chapters later, he's again with his disciples. And he says, let me tell you so you know in advance what's coming with the idea that they should be preparing themselves. Now it's not the word must, now it's the word will. I will be betrayed. I will be condemned to death. I will be handed over. I will be mocked and spit upon and flogged and killed. And on the third day, I will rise again. For you see, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So I'd like Mark to tell you his story. And if you want to follow, and I would encourage you to please to open your Bible to Mark chapter 15. It's page 721 if you use the Chairback Bible. And we'll start the journey where Ruth and I started it 20 some years ago, Jesus has just been arrested, tried. I want to say convicted, but Pilate wasn't at all sure that he was guilty. But to satisfy the crowd, he handed him over, is Mark's term, to be crucified. He's mocked by the soldiers in the Praetorian. And then at the very end of verse 20 and beginning with verse 21, they led him out to crucify him. And Along the way, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. That stands out to me because it's the only time in the narrative from here until the death of Christ that any one of the players is named by person. And here was a man that wasn't even from Jerusalem. He was a pilgrim, probably a Jew, coming in for Passover time. Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Mark understood that his readers would say, oh yeah, we know who those guys are. We know them. We know that at least Rufus was a leader in the church at Rome where the Gospel of Mark was written. And so the reader would immediately connect with somebody that they knew who could verify this. Oh, yes, so it was your dad that carried that cross. They forced him to carry the cross not out of any compassion for Jesus, as it was impatience for themselves. We've got to get this thing moving. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place or brow of the skull. Then they offered him wine laced or mixed with myrrh to deaden pain, but he did not take it. We'll see that later. And they crucified him. How simply Mark states it. Because he knew his Roman readers would know exactly what that meant. He he knew that they would understand that no Roman citizen would ever go through a death like that unless it was for nothing less than high treason. It was reserved for the worst of people they crucified him. Then because every job has its perks, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Third time, it's mentioned. Third hour, 9 o'clock in the morning. That will become significant in a few moments. The written notice of the charge uh, against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus, who had been the friend and companion of sinners his entire life, now died between two of them. Mark saw that as significant those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. They hurled insults at him. The Greek word is they blasphemed him. The charge against Jesus was the blasphemer. Mark wants us as readers to take sides. Who is the real blasphemer here? Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. He saved others, but he can't save himself. They said that as an insult. They didn't recognize the truth with which they spoke. It was only because he could not save himself or did not save himself that he was able to save them those crucified with him third group the passers by the chief priests and the teachers of the law now those crucified with him also heaped insults on him hour after hour after hour how do I know that next verse at the sixth hour noon Three hours later, at the sixth hour, high noon, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. It just seemed as though darkness killed the sunlight. Or the sun went into lamentation that the heavens, the skies just seemed to close. Darkness swallowed the land until the ninth hour. We don't know what that darkness was. Probably wasn't a solar eclipse because this was Passover time, the Passover full moon It was some sort of supernatural intervention. We don't know what. To many of those there, their minds would have gone back to all of the stories that they had heard over and over again about the time that the land was swallowed up in darkness, not there in Israel, but in Egypt. During what would become the time of the Exodus. When the plague just before the, that which instituted the Passover was the plague of darkness. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 10. It was darkness that was so thick it could be felt. It's what Moses said. And it lasted for three days. You could be sure that that would have been remembered in stories. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. The old song says. At the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, after three hours of darkness, that ninth hour was the Jewish call to prayer. And at that time, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which Mark translates for us, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There were some of those standing near that heard this, that they thought he said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. Elijah. One man ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, sort of an ancient Gatorade, I guess, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. Apparently there was that which bordered on a legend that Elijah was some sort of patron saint of lost causes and that perhaps he would come and rescue this one. But because it was the ninth hour and it was the hour of Jewish prayer, Jesus is praying on the cross. He who would live by scripture, he who governed his life by scripture, who met temptation with Scripture, met death with Scripture as well. And he quoted the only verse in all of the Bible that would even remotely reflect what he was going through and put words to his agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The opening words of the 22nd Psalm. The God forsaken Jesus. The only time in all of eternity that he was separated from his Father. Never a millisecond of uninterrupted fellowship with his father, now severed and broken. Not did he just feel forsaken, he was forsaken. You say, Cal, that's awfully harsh. And I say, Paul writes in the New Testament. God made him who knew no sin, who never experienced sin, who had no sin. Are you ready for this? To be sin for us. I tremble just to even express that. I wouldn't dare say that if that weren't Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him our sin. The Bible says if we've broken one commandment, we've broken it all. And we're under the curse of God. That's terrible news. But Paul also says in Galatians chapter 3 that he became that curse for us. Not just bore it, he became it. It should have been I who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it was he in my place who bore my sin in his own body on the tree. Only in the midst of a cosmic darkness could such a cosmic transaction take place. And then Mark replies, or continues, with a loud cry, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Mark doesn't tell us what that loud cry was. But most of the commentators agree that that loud cry is the cry recorded in John 19.30. Jesus cried from that cross with this loud voice, megaphone. Megaphone cry to tell us, one word translated, it is finished. Where did he get that idea? Where did he get that word? Psalm 22 that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? goes on to describe in rather graphic detail all that Jesus would suffer in crucifixion long before anybody knew anything about the art of crucifixion. And then it goes on to say that the nations of the world would bow before this one and at the very last verse of the psalm, the last words of the psalm, is that God did it. And it would be this word. It is finished. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Again, the old song. And with that, he breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who was in charge, the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, he was the one in charge. A centurion normally is over a hundred soldiers. He's one of a phalanx of many, but over a hundred. Here was probably a squad of four to see to it about the death of this one and the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died how he died one of my favorite writers Walter Rangren writes it this way The centurion whirls around to see Jesus and he sees eyes like fiery darts in the darkness. Then, suddenly, he dies. The centurion's jaw drops. He stares, but he's seen it before. He knows the signs. Jesus is dead. Dead. No coma, no deeper sleep than another sleep. All at once his eyes see nothing, the mind thinks nothing, the heart has ceased to beat. But suddenly, that's what rivets the centurion. It's as if this man chose to go fully conscious, straight to the wall of death and dare to strike it with all his might and in the striking die aware of absolutely everything. A pagan gasps with the solemn weight of conviction, confession, and faith. Truly this man was the Son of God. What a paradigm shift for a Roman centurion, the representative of the imperial government who defined deity by power, attributing deity to this Jew who had just been executed. Mark is writing this gospel so that we might be persuaded that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That was his thesis at the beginning, and he ends the gospel with this confession. We don't know all that that meant to that centurion, but we know what his confession meant to Mark. And so we're left again with the question that Jesus posed to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Not, who do you want me to be? Who do you say that I am? We know Mark's answer to that question. What's ours? Of the people there that day, there were some who wept. There were some who just watched. There were others, ignorant of the whole thing, that just passed by. There were others that mocked. There were some who confessed. Mark doesn't tell us this. Luke does that one of those two malefactors crucified alongside the Lord Jesus confessed him. And here, the centurion. I'm going to bring it home with a confession that perhaps we can share together. And if this is your heartfelt confession, when we, in a few moments, will partake of the elements that represent his body broken and his blood shed for us, that you might eagerly participate with us. Here is the confession. It should have been I who cried out. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Can we say that together. It should have been I who cried out. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? But because it was he who was forsaken, it is I or corporately we who never Shall be if that's your confession please join with us if that's not yet your confession let even the passing of the elements be an invitation to you to make it so when you receive them they will be nestled together please hold them And we will partake together in a few moments.